Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free, more than 550 episodes and counting. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one Hello. person at just hey, one time. Hey, how's it going, guys? Welcome <laughs> right. to the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm standing in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm actually not standing. I am standing. I'm kind of standing. I feel like I'm leaning on my stand-up desk. I'm in a leaning position. I'm holding myself up. I'm in a defensive crouch. It's good to be with you. Anita Felicelli is my guest. Her debut story collection is called Love Songs for a Lost Continent. It's available now for, uh, from Stillhouse Press. And it is earning rave reviews. I had a delightful conversation with Anita Felicelli. You'll be hearing that in just a bit. I do have an announcement about The Nervous Breakdown, my literary magazine. It has been around for a long time, especially in the context of website literature, if that's a thing. Uh, I founded that site in 2006, July 2006, if my memory is correct. And I have been the editor for all of this time. And just this past week, I, I sort of passed the baton to Joseph Grantham, who has been a guest on this program. Many of you know Joey. He is now the editor-in-chief of The Nervous Breakdown. So very excited about that. If you're out there, if you're a writer and uh, you have something to say, you want to, uh, you know, you want to publish something on the internet, you can reach out to uh, Joey Grantham over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Check it out. Some new life, some new blood, a new generation carrying uh, the site forward. I will continue to function in a, an advisory role. I'll continue to curate the book club. I'm going to continue to podcast, but Joey is going to be running the editorial. So very pleased to announce that. Congratulations to him. And uh, go check out thenervousbreakdown.com. My guest today, once again, is Anita Felicelli. Her debut story collection, Love Songs for a Lost Continent. 
is available now from Stillhouse Press. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Anita Felicelli. I guess I should first say that I don't know that I ever did come to terms <laughs> with the otherness. Um, I think maybe writing is partly a process of, of trying to come to terms, but I, with no real expectation that that would actually happen. Um, so, uh, and, you know, I, my sibling and I actually are really different, which was kind of, I think, I think motivates some of the collection as well, and that you can share an identity with a person and still be very, very, very different because of personality and life experience and stuff like that. So what is the difference between you and your sibling? Oh, <laughs> everything is different between me and my sibling. Um, is it a sister or a brother? Can we get that much info? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know I use a lot of uh, gender neutral terms. Um, my sibling is actually gender queer <clears throat> and recently uh, started to uh, identify as, as non-binary. Uh, so uh, for decades, she was my brother. Um, more recently, I guess, would prefer to be known as my sister. So Got it. Okay. So, but you guys are very different in terms of personality and yet you feel like obviously this strong sense of familial bond and identity. I feel a strong sense of identity similarity, um, but only because the, the names associated with our identities are the same. I actually think our identities are extremely different too. Um, but it's, he, she's still the, the one person who's uh, closest to me in, in that weird identity. (laughs) And, and like, like, what is your, um, like ethnicity, like your parents, like you were born in India, right? But then raised in the Bay area, right? <laughs> That's it. But, but both of your parents are Indian. Yes. Both my parents are Indian. And, which, so for some reason surprises people, but yes, they're both Indian. Well, I think it's like the Felicelli. I yeah. Think, I, I think th- that does throw people off. Yeah. That's my spouse's family last name. Okay. But you were raised, your parents are both from India. They came over to the States. Like, are they, what does that mean? Are you first generation American? I consider myself 1.5 generation American because I grew up here, but I actually do remember sort of the experiences of immigrating, um, even though it wasn't my choice to immigrate. So I never really know whether, you know, first generation to me is you actually made an active decision to immigrate and generation two is you were born in a particular, you know, the new immigrated to country. But I would say I'm somewhere in between that. So how old were you when your parents decided to make the move? I was uh, over over a year and a half. Okay, so you were still you were still really little. I was still really small. Right? You, don't, you don't have any conscious memory of that, do you? I do. My first memories are all of my first winter in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I, yeah, that's why I I mean I remember very consciously. Uh, the, our first few years in Pittsburgh and sort of the stress and um, trying to figure out how to pronounce words and all that kind of stuff. So those are my first memories. So that's why I still consider myself, you know, 1.5 rather than two. Interesting. So you, and you were born in what part of India? I was born in Madurai, which is the southernmost part of India. Okay. It's a so, city in the southernmost part of India. So warm. I'm like, I'm trying to like compute that. <laughs> I'm trying to compute that like a one, one and a half year old would have these like, you know, vivid memories that imprint. And I guess like, uh, if you're one and a half and you're coming from Southern India and all of a sudden you're in like a Pittsburgh winter, that would probably be a very, that would make a strong impression on a, on a toddler. Right. 
Right, right. And it's the winter specifically that I, that strikes me as my first memory. You're exactly right. It's, it was tropical and then suddenly there's a lot of snow and, uh, um, things were just, uh, you know, more isolated. I wasn't with my family. I actually lived with my grandparents for, uh, more, probably around six months of my first year of life, uh, because my parents had to go some, to another city for work and couldn't bring me with them. So, um, so I think it was like a shock to my system, you know, like to, I was with my grandparents and then suddenly I was, you know, in, in the snowy place. <laughs> well, and what do your, what do your parents do? Like what brought them over? Uh, they went to grad school at Carnegie Mellon uh, for uh, one for computer science, the other for operation systems management. Okay. Okay. So no writers in your family. Like you don't come from like your parents aren't literary. No, but my grandfather actually wrote uh, romances uh, for the radio. So I, I, there is a sense in which I come from a writer family, but further back than my immediate parents. Romances for the radio? Yeah, romance romance dramas for the radio. Oh, do you have do you have any of these? No, I wish I did though, because I'm very curious. But they would all be in Tamil, so it would be hard for me to understand since I only have a rudimentary knowledge of of my parents' language. So is there is there like an English language equivalent? I guess back in the day, like when radio was more of the. Uh, I'm thinking of like War of the Worlds and like H.G. Wells and stuff. Maybe like radio romances were happening in the states. Yeah, um, I have never listened to a radio romance. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> but it actually seems like it would be fun. I mean, it'd be fun to be, you know, a family that listened to the radio rather than watch TV. But that might be just, you know, uh, that I'm, nostal- you know, that has that old timey charm or whatever to think of it being on the radio. Yeah, I've always found charming these old like photos that you see from back in the day when like families would gather around the radio and actually like physically look at the radio while the radio was playing. You know what I'm saying? It's like right. a... <laughs> Like a concentrated experience. Right. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Um, okay, so you are in Pittsburgh. You're a toddler. Your parents are going to graduate school in the in the sciences, and then you move west, right, to the Bay Area, to Palo Alto. Right. Okay, and uh, like uh, we talked a bit about this, um, you know, off the air, where you were saying that you know there's been a lot of obviously uh, big changes in Palo Alto over the course of your lifetime as Silicon Valley has kind of come to full flower, if that's a way to put it. Um, but there's been like a lot of of uh, socioeconomic changes in the Bay Area that I think are are principally related to technology and the associated boom, but. Can you just talk uh, about growing up there and the changes that you felt, um, you know, over the years? Sure. Um, the f- when, yeah, when we first moved to Palo Alto, it was actually more of like a kind of a crunchy granola hippie professor town. <laughs> and I actually really enjoyed the Palo Alto of my um, youth. It was not, you know, a status obsessed town. It was a, a really kind of a charming place. Um there were definitely some negatives about it. There was, there was still some, you know, racism or whatever, but, um, but the overall feeling of it was, was more, um, more of a sixties Joan Baez type of feeling. (laughs) Uh, but I think probably when I was in high school, that all started to change. Um, I can't think, I can't pinpoint exactly when it was, but it probably around the time as we were gaining steam towards the first boom, in the late, in the mid nineties. And then by the time I I came home from college, it was just a completely different place. And I remember, you know, a friend of mine who was her coworker considered, you know, a six, five, zero area code, a status symbol. And I thought that was just completely crazy, (laughs) you know, because I had grown up within it and I didn't grow up with, you know, I grew up with some wealthy people, but also some blue collar people and some middle-class people. And it was just much more of a diverse, a socioeconomically diverse uh, setting in my childhood. That's, and then, um, that's how I grew up. Like, uh, you know, and I don't know about you, I'd be interested to know, but I didn't have like a really strong sense of class as a teenager. I mean, I guess I knew it was there. It was all right there in my face. Like, Oh, like so-and-so's, you know, dad is a millionaire and they have like a, a racquetball, <laughs> co- they have a racquetball court in their house. But Right. I, I didn't really give a shit. I was like, Oh, that's fun. Like, let's get drunk in the racquetball court at the party or whatever. But I didn't, then I had friends who grew up in, uh, you know, blue collar households and that was okay too. Like, I just didn't have like a really strong sense of it. Like, did you feel the disparity or was it more, was it kind of like, like apple pie in the way that, or, or I, I don't even know how to like phrase it, but I guess I just didn't have a, a strong consciousness of all that. I I want to say that I was conscious of it, but I wasn't as conscious of it as I am now. <laughs> um, but I, but I, I mean, we were middle class. Definitely, I noticed there were differences because, um, you know, I didn't have any dolls. I didn't. Ha- I didn't. Uh, my parents weren't big consumers. We didn't own a lot of fancy things. There were other classmates of mine where they could crash a car into, you know, the the quarter. Uh, the corner car car store uh, car dealership and break all the glass in there and it was it was kind of shruggable <laughs> to and so it did strike me but it was it, it more struck me that I was just among the I was the norm <laughs> and that there were some people who were somehow able to get away with a lot because they were extremely wealthy right yeah I think I, that was the case for me like I didn't want for anything but I was definitely in the more in the normal category so I didn't feel 
uh, I didn't feel a sense of like otherness or lack, you know? Um, right. I sort of missed that. I, and you talk about like Palo Alto being crunchy and being, you know, having kind of this Joan Baez vibe and not status obsessed. You know where my mind immediately went when you said that is like, where is that place now? Like where on the map? <laughs> I want to go there. <laughs> you know? Right, right. And it doesn't exist, I think. Right. I, you know, I, I, I think it's just in our, in a memory and it's not, um, it's not even a tangible place. I don't think there are places. I mean, I want to say that maybe like some place like Austin probably has a vibe like that, but I haven't even been to Austin. So I don't know. Yeah. It's like, I haven't either. So it's like the Austin of the imagination. I think like <laughs> maybe there's like a more egalitarian sense of, uh, life in like a town like Portland, uh, or, you know, like I think of Portland, Maine as being sort of a cool little town, but I, these are all just like projections of mine or like imaginations. They don't have any real basis in life experience. Right. Exactly. And I feel that way about Portland too. Um, my spouse and I are always joking we should move to Portland, but, but then the, for me, the race issue becomes like more pronounced with that as well. Like I'm not, all, you know, I, I don't know that I buy that vision of Portland completely. But, but, but definitely Portlandia fuels <laughs> some of that, uh, some of that imagination. Well, and around. I got, I got, I like, I hear you on that and I got a cop to like a little bit of naivete when it comes to, uh, like you mentioned earlier that there was some racism in Palo Alto. I think there's a part of me that would be like shocked by that. Like what, like the Bay area, it's like that it's the land of hippies and tolerance and <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And like, I say, I know that, there's a lot of disbelief when I say my opinions about anything. So, <laughs> but that's, that's exactly what it is. Right. When I, when I say I don't belong to any group, I don't have a shared vision with any group. So, well, and the, but I mean, the same thing goes for Portland, which like I actually has, um, a pretty dark history of uh, racial intolerance when you dig in and the same goes for Boston, which, you know, in liberal Massachusetts, like I, I've talked to many people on this show who are like, Oh my God, like Boston's the most racist city you can possibly imagine. And, um, you know, I guess the lesson is that it, it lives a lot of places. It's not like, uh, you know, these quote unquote liberal bastions are insulated from it. Right. And I mean, there's also just the factor of, of time and reforms and, you know, um, there, are, there are efforts made to, to make things better. And in some cases they seem to work. So, or at least partially work, maybe not for everyone, but for a little bit. So when it comes to, um, this sense of fe like feeling, uh, a kind of otherness or dislocation or not necessarily belonging to any particular group, do you feel like this, uh, like help to make you a writer? Like, did it make you more observational? Like, I mean, I think there's like a natural logic that sort of flows from feeling like that to maybe being someone who wants to make sense of it or, um, making a person, I don't know. Like, it seems like if you're, if you're feeling like you're on the periphery, you're more likely to be observational and paying attention and internal. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think it being outside of things definitely gave me a different viewpoint. And the fact that, you know, my viewpoint was so different and I didn't have the shared vision was actually probably what propelled me to want to write so much um, and, and sort of articulate that vision, even if nobody agreed with me. <laughs> what, so, what do you what do you mean by yeah, shared? What do you mean by shared vision? Well, I think um like what we were talking about with Palo Alto, there are definitely people who will he would hear that characterization of Palo Alto as having any kind of racism and would say, no, that's just completely wrong. She's totally wrong, you know. Um, but obviously my personal experiences give me a different lens onto that. 
and they might have a shared vision, but that's not my, you know, I don't share it with them. You know, what did, what did you experience growing up? Did you have really negative experiences? Uh, yes, <laughs> I did have really negative experiences, but I also had a lot of really positive experiences. So I see why that seems unbelievable because, you know, I'm like relatively well adjusted and, you know, everything turned out okay. So I did have really negative experiences, but, um, but, but everything worked out anyway. And then, uh, you like went to high school in Palo Alto and then went on to college at, uh, Berkeley. Yes. Okay. And then like, was this like a, was this a move that you made knowing that you already were interested in books and writing? Yeah, it, it was. I, I was always trying to figure out a day job. I, think I told you the last time we talked, um, that, that I had wanted to be a writer since I was five, but I always wrote kind of weird things. And again, because of the lack of the shared vision, I knew that I needed, that I was going to be on the literary side. Like even in high school, I knew that that was, that was going to be the direction I headed. Um, so I knew I needed a day job. And so I actually played around with various different day jobs. And when I went to UC Berkeley, I definitely planned to write, but I also was trying to figure out what I, how I was going to support myself because it wasn't going to be through, um, literary fiction for sure. And were there books that you read like in your adolescence and in your college years that, I mean, I guess you were reading your whole life. Like you, you were one of these like, like super reader, children but was it were there books that you read as you got a little bit older that were extremely impactful were there musicians like that spoke to you and gave you uh, any kind of map you know for how to um make sense of the world <laughs> oh i was influenced by like so many different books i can't even you know um articulate all of them because <laughs> I was, I was a huge reader. I pretty much did nothing but read except when my parents forced me to do something else. All, every time I run into like one of my parents' friends, we talk, we laugh because I don't even recognize them. I was sitting in their house reading, um, being completely impolite, just, just reading the whole time. Um, and in music, I was also really into music, but I don't, there was no map for me. Um, I, I, I'm so envious of writers who have, you know, a writer that they aspired to be like, but I, I didn't have that. I just knew that I wanted to carve out my own space. It's like you're writing your own map. Yeah, I had to write my own map. There was nobody to write a map for me. There were no um, Tamil American authors when I was growing up. I didn't relate. When Jhumpa Lahiri came on the scene, I was already, you know, like what... It, I don't, I don't even know, late, late teens or early twenties, but I didn't really relate to the Bengali sort of quiet academic experience. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't my experience at all. <laughs> so, so I didn't really have any particular, I didn't really relate to Barthi Mukherjee's writing. She was prior to Jhumpa Lahiri, but she's also Bengali. And, um, you know, I related to it in the sense that I love to read about other people, but I didn't relate to it in the sense that it was somehow speaking about my life. And and forgive me for not having like a better understanding of Indian culture and South Indian culture in particular. But when you say Thumal, you're it's like the the Thumal Tigers. Is that like Sri Lankan? Like I, yeah, that's like the confusion. That's the confusion, right? So p people are really reluctant to, to say Thumal about people in India. But actually, the largest one of the largest populations of Thumal people is in India. It's in South India. Oh, um, I, and I've always but, I've always but, pronounced it Tamil. <laughs> so there goes. Oh yeah, yeah, and most 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 Americans do. So I mean, I'm just pronouncing it the way I pronounce it, but I I don't take offense to anyone else pronouncing it another way. So well, but is is yours the correct pronunciation? The correct pronunciation is actually Thummer, 
but it's too hard because there's uh, a sound at the end of the word that is not found in the English language. Okay. So instead they translate, they made it an L and then that turned into Tamil. Um, but it's actually Thummer. Thummer. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, so like that's, and that's like an, you know, you bring up an interesting in what should be, I guess, an obvious point, but that like, you know, uh, there are some Indian writers or Indian American writers who emerged, but just because they happen to emerge doesn't necessarily mean they reflected your particular experience. Like India is a pretty diverse culture in and of itself. <laughs> right. Right. It's an extremely diverse like na- nation, I guess. So, um, I mean, I relate to it in the sense of like, you know, there's something to relate to in the distance, right? Like, you know, if a call comes in the middle of the night, everybody who immigrated from India, I think, knows to be frightened that someone's died, you know, but, um, but that's, that's uh, a similarity born of, of just the fact of immigrating from such a distance, I think, not, not, you know, something special to being. I think if if my phone rings after 10 o'clock, I immediately assume someone died. (laughs) Okay, you do too. All right. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. But. I think like if my phone rings, period. And I'm just like, just text me. Okay, if you're calling me, then someone died. Otherwise, do not. No. So did you enjoy, I mean, you enjoyed Berkeley? Like, did Ber- was Berkeley an improvement on Palo Alto? Did you find it to be uh, like a friendlier community? Oh, God, I fell in love with Berkeley. I loved Berkeley. I still love Berkeley, actually. Um, I, I never quite understood the Berkeley thing because it all just seemed really natural to me. <laughs> when I went there, I was like, oh, finally, like a, a place that seems like, quote unquote, normal. That's the kind of brain I had as an 18 year old. So, yeah, I was the same way. I, I kind of I still I all I will always idealize Berkeley uh a little bit. Same kind. I went to Boulder, so they they feel like kind of like sister towns in some way. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. But I feel like Berkeley is like actually in practice more. It's it's way more diverse and accepting. Like the Boulder, when I look back on it, it's pretty uh, provincial in some ways. Though I guess that might be changing a little bit. Mm. Um, but so you're in uh, you're in Berkeley. You're studying writing. I think when we talked last time, you were you were saying. Uh, that you kind of created your own degree, which is very Berkeley. Like you get to like kind of create your own (laughs) course of study. Right. Um, Yeah, that was an interdisciplinary studies field major and it was um, art and anthro, um, specifically folklore and art. And my thesis was, you know, I um, was a set of shadow boxes involving a piece of folklore that particularly interested me. Wait, what does that mean? A set of shadow boxes? Um, do you know the artist Joseph Cornell? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the little, yeah. The, Those boxes, yeah. What Those you, are called shadow boxes. Oh, they are? Why did I think they were called something else? They probably have another name, too. Or dioramas. <laughs> why, why did I think they were called dioramas? Or my, oh, well, I mean, you could totally call them dioramas also. Okay. I didn't. I think of them as shadow boxes, but... Um. I think of shadow boxing as like people punching at nothing. It's <laughs> my entire frame oh. of reference. Well, and you know, art is pretty much that, shadow boxing. <laughs> you know for all the people pay attention to it so so okay so because like and i also i heard you say anthropology and i've always felt that this is a a great education for somebody who is aspiring to write just because you're learning about human beings and it's giving you like a real sense of historical context i know it's really broad so you know you can take it in a million different directions but um you were particularly focused on folklore do you feel that it was uh, like instructive, helpful, like did that education, 
uh, carry forward for you in terms of the work that you're doing now? Uh, I, I love folklore. I didn't think about it in a career path kind of way. Um, but I, uh, I definitely feel it helped, um, work out some of the elements of this collection because the collection has, uh, significant influence from various folk tales and fairy tales. And I was trying to talk about, um, sort of the individual against society's story about the individual and, um, society's story i think is really well reflected in in folk tales at least some of the time and also like this element of magical realism and right the right. the freedom that i guess that gives you creatively as a writer um you know if, if you're if you're willing to integrate magic into the story it can obviously open a lot of doors but what like what else is there like what else draws you to that like wanting to make sure that you have that kind of range Um, what draws me to folklore? Well, no, just like, I think like there are certain writers who are going for like the more K, you know, Kmart realism in their fiction. Oh, right, right, right. And, yeah. you know, okay. to be, you know, and I, you know, it is tied to folklore, but I'm always interested in people who, from the perspective of imagination, are able to go to these places and are drawn to it. And, and I'm just curious to hear you talk a little bit more about why. I think probably because, you know, folk, folk, folk tales and fairy tales and myths were such a big part of my childhood reading. And so they kind of seeped into my subconscious so that even if I wanted to get rid of them, I'm not sure that I could, like I still walk around and we'll see sort of similarities in everyday life to, to some kind of, you know, situation in a folk tale or a fairy tale. Um, I kind of live in, in a little bit of a weird space. Most people, <laughs> you know, I'll, prob I'll probably do see things more, in a Kmart realism kind of a way. Um, I actually sort of go around with my normal life, seeing things in more of a magic realist kind of a way. Uh, so the, the, I wouldn't say that studying folklore actually helped me all that much, but just reading so much folklore and, and fairy tales and myths definitely influenced my perception of things. Yeah, I'm always amazed by writers who can do that and like do it in a way where it feels seamless and like I'm I'm fully buying in because I think temperamentally I'm wired more towards uh, like realism, but I can be taken mm -hmm. in, I can be taken in, you know, if it's well if it's well executed, I can be taken in just like a child, you know, and that's a that's a really cool magic trick to be able to pull. Yeah, no, I mean I wish I actually wish I could write more in that Kmart realistic kind of style. I uh <laughs> I, I tried to write like that for a really long time. Um in college, all my workshops, uh, all my stories are in that kind of, you know, attempted minimalism and just straight realism and trying to, you know, figure out how to be most economic about explaining the world as basically as those authors <laughs> saw it but i just i it just as i got older and older and i just saw that there was too much of a gulf in how i was actually perceiving the world and how they were writing it was just a like a and it wasn't like a forced gulf it wasn't something that i had to choose it was just i couldn't make my brain do that <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you know, think, I, I think i think you should own it to, i feel I, like that's you know that's what what that's what literature in america it, it has been for like for, you know, what, 30, uh, several decades anyway. Well, but, so. but you should own, I think you should own the fact that you have this, uh, this like folklore, magical realism bent. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I try. I am trying to do now because I, because I just can't, um, 
I can't write that other way very easily. Like it's like actually effortful for me. And the way that I do write is more sort of my natural gesture. And, you know, with like a visual arts background, like your natural gesture is actually something to be happy about. And that's not necessarily true, I think, for literary fiction, but um, (laughs) but sort of gravitating towards what's more and more individual about you is is a philosophy I appreciate. So. What is my natural gesture? That's what I'm now thinking. Do I have a natural gesture? <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that totally a weird thing to say? I don't know. But... No, I, I, think it's, I think it sounds like really, I, I was like, wow, I got to figure out what my natural gesture is. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I love it when I read work that it deviates from, you know, uh, traditional literary fiction in that I can see, you know, the authors, that the author perceives the world a little bit differently. So. Well, and let's be honest, like whatever we put it, you know, traditional literary fiction in quotes, you know, whatever we think of as that it is and historically has been dictated by a bunch of like mostly upper class white dudes for a long time. And it's, it's it's actually like pretty narrow in terms of its scope. So uh, I think it's, it it sounds good to me to mix it up and to have um, to have it widen, you know, in terms of what that actually means. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, you just said, uh, a minute ago that the more Kmart realistic style of kind of writing and also of like seeing the world doesn't really mesh with your particular perspective, which veers more towards magical realism. Um, so you're, you're speaking not just in terms of the work itself, but also in terms of your actual like day-to-day perspective and how you conceive of, human reality. Uh, right. So what does that actually mean? You know, like, is that tied to some sort of like spiritual foundation or religious belief? Or is it like, are you, you know, like, what does that actually mean in practice? Um, well, without going too far afield, I'll just say, you know, I had a, a breakdown, um, maybe uh, in 2004, that altered my actual perception of the world. And that sort of ever since then, I've reality to me already seems kind of multi-level or, you know, disparate, you know, I can see very easily when I gel with someone else's <laughs> uh, perceptions of reality. And when mine is veering off course, um, I a lot of years of therapy, I guess, to allow me to sort of see that there's some sort of distinction. Um, and, you know, I did grow up with a lot of different spiritual um, practices but, uh, but I wouldn't say that, that what I'm talking about right now is related to spirituality. It's more like related to just genuinely believing that different people experience different realities. Hmm. And when you talk about, um, a breakdown, like, I don't want to make you, make you go too deep into the weeds, but like, was it just like, um, some sort of depression or, um, was it a spiritual crisis? Like what, what, what happened? Oh gosh, I wish it was a spiritual crisis. <laughs> um, no, it, uh, I actually, yeah, I experienced depression most of my life. Um, not most of my life, but you know, uh, most of my adolescence and upwards. And, uh, at some point I had sort of a really negative experience with, um, an ex-boyfriend of mine and got really depressed. So I got on SSRIs, which I think is like a normal, <laughs> normal thing to do, but it, I didn't have a normal reaction to them and I became manic and um, I stopped sleeping because my anxiety and my mania together kind of kept me awake. (laughs) So I didn't sleep for maybe like two or three days 
I mean, two or three weeks. And uh, afterwards, I had to be on, you know, antipsychotics, and I got a bipolar one diagnosis, and all these things, you know, happened to me as a result of the SSRIs. And, um, and I spent like, basically the next, you know, six or seven years trying to work all that out, and to figure out what had happened, and whether it was whether the bipolar one diagnosis was a genuine diagnosis or not. And, uh, and so I had to learn how to, how to construct a reality for myself that would allow me to function in normal society because I didn't, you know, because I felt like I was capable of doing that. I mean, there's definitely people who would have that experience and sort of never come back from it. And that there's a lot of stories about those experiences, but my experience was that I was able to come back from it through like just a lot of therapy and medication and stuff. But I, but I still am left with that sense that I remember what it was like to have a different reality. And I, whenever I interact with people now, I still have that in the back of my mind that there's the potential that I'm seeing, perceiving everything very differently than they are. Interesting. So you're talking about this period of like sleeplessness for three weeks, which is yeah, kind of, aston- sure. it's astonishing to think of, but like, I'm curious, like, like when you say you were experiencing a different reality, like, does it mean like a visual? Like, were you, you know what I'm saying? Like, were you looking out at the world and like seeing like a cartoon? <laughs> no. Like what happens to, what happens to a human being when they haven't slept in three weeks? Um, so what happened to me, which I guess is different, diff- you know, could be potentially different from what happens to other people. What happened to me was that I started to think that there, the whole world had meaning. Um, and I suddenly I, I knew what those meanings were. <laughs> like I thought that there were, you know, I thought, that I had some power over the presidential election of that year. That was, um, I think the year that, that John Kerry was running. Um, and my friend's name, my friend's first name is Kerry. So I thought there was some sort of connection there. I watched an episode of Dawson's Creek and I thought it was like somehow a manifestation of an earlier, very bad relationship that I'd had. I, you know, I got a text from an ex boyfriend saying his mother died and I thought there must be some deeper meaning that I needed to dig for. Um, you know, all these kinds of things where like, you know, uh, even after I got medicated, I, I kept thinking that there were still signs, right? Like that this friend who sent me socks because she felt sorry, she didn't quite understand what had happened to me, but she sent me socks without bothering to write a note. But I looked at the fact that there was no note as somehow significant, um, cause I wanted there to be meaning. Like I wanted to interpret that. <laughs> I it's like almost like a, a critic on overdrive, right? Like looking for meanings that are not necessarily there, you know, there, it was just an oversight on her part, but, but my brain was determined to make a meaning out of it. So. Well, it, bring, it brings to mind a couple of things. Like, I think like what you're speaking to is, uh, like how fragile one sense of reality is that, that that's for all of us. And also like how mutable and, uh, subjective, <laughs> Uh, it really is when, when it comes right down to it, even though I think like the way the world works and functions, um, to greater and lesser extents on a day-to-day basis is kind of dependent upon this, like agreed upon hunch of what reality is or is supposed to be. It's actually, it's actually kind of bullshit (laughs) or not even kind (laughs) of, you know, like we, we think we have such a handle on what's going on here. And the truth is that we don't really at all. There's very little ground under our feet. Right. Well, that's definitely what I came out of all of that feeling. But but I, I know there's people who feel that that's dangerous to, to have that view um, because then you have the potential for someone like, you know, Trump or whoever <laughs> to come in and try and reshape 
the reality to to what they what they see. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't, I think it's like, like the way I guess I would conceive of it is that we have two levels of reality. There's like the ordinary day-to-day reality and the, you know, the reality of the individual self, but then there's like the deeper reality where like, we're all made of stars and everything's interconnected and, you know, like uh, subject and object are one. And, you know, you start to get into all of that stuff, which I think, you know, feels pretty true to me and uh, observable in some respects, but I don't think you can necessarily function day to day. Like you still need to like have a birth certificate and a driver's license. You can't just be like, I'm stars. You know? <laughs> like, right. Well, but society like makes it that way, right? Like, I mean, to live in society among other people, you have to agree on certain things. Like, <laughs> Right, right, right. But maybe like maybe there are different models. I mean, clearly there are better, uh, there are more experiments to be done in terms of how we organize ourselves. And, um, I'm very interested in that project. I don't have any like great answers, but I am definitely interested in, in this notion that like, it's not settled, you know, like, I don't think it's healthy or wise to assume that like we've arrived at some, um, finite point where it's like, okay, we figured it out. This is the best way for humans to organize themselves, you know, like, right. This isn't the end of history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think (laughs) we have some room to grow. I think we need to like check ourselves a little bit and, and, uh, open up the perspectives. So, um, maybe like, I mean, do you, I I certainly don't want to minimize, so please, or, or be insensitive. So please don't take it as such. But when you look back on this difficult experience, um, fully acknowledging how difficult it was and and probably painful. Like, is there anything, did you feel any sense of like, um, gain from it in terms of your perspective or any kind of like, wow, that really sucked. I wouldn't want to do it again, but I feel grateful for having, (laughs) for having learned something. Um, it really sucked. And I definitely, definitely would not want to do it again. In fact, my entire life now is organized around that never happening again. Uh, but I did get certain things out of it in that I sort of saw, you know, what my values were for the first time. I think um, I had until that point sort of lived my life by the seat of my pants, just kind of going along with whatever worked in that moment. Um And when that happened to me, you know, I was a litigator at the time that that happened to me and it was not not what I was supposed to be doing. And I, even though that sounds very woo woo to say this, like, you know, I, I had sort of an awakening that it was not, that was not what I was supposed to be doing, that I was supposed to be getting back to my original purpose, which was to be writing and that, that that's what I really wanted to be doing. Um, but I didn't actually listen to you know, that real is that realization. Cause you know, when you go and it's that experience is labeled as psychosis, you assume that everything in that experience was bad, right? Cause there's nothing good about psychosis. And, uh, I did get some meanings out of it, but it actually took me several more years of to process the insights that I had at that time and in that experience. And what, um, are, and, what I would, are, and I would still never want to have the experience again, regardless of having gotten some insights into it. And I would strongly recommend no one else <laughs> have the experience if they can avoid it as well. So, what about the insights? Like, do you have like, and you said you have a sense of your values. Like, is it something you can you can share or articulate? Um, just that. Without going too deeply into it, I just I would need more time to think about it. It's almost like it would be like an essay or something. Um, just that, 
just that everything in society is constructed and that, um, and that you, you should be following your heart and what you actually want to be doing. I know that sounds really cheesy, but you know, that the status and money and, you know, all the, all the sort of trappings of, of those things are just sort of, I mean, they're nice things to have, but, but that they should be really, really far back in your list of, um, in your, in your list of wants, <laughs> you know, there's so much value in being functional and being able to, you know, pursue the thing that you love, even if there's no reward for it and there's no audience for it even. Um, yeah, I mean, almost, you know, we're in a very audience based culture right now, I think. And there's sort of an assumption that if you can get an audience for your work, that's what makes it valuable. But it's really the work itself that's valuable. And that was something that occurred to me during my episode when I couldn't sleep and I was thinking about what was happening to me. And I was like alternately crying and, you know, trying to make meaning and it was just such a mess. And, uh, and I was just thinking that I wanted to lock myself away from society because I just felt like there was, there's nothing good for me in society and that I wanted to be pursuing what I wanted to pursue regardless of whether there was anything good to come out of it. I think that's lovely. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and why? And, and also, and also, I know it sounds a little. It, I mean, maybe that's something other people come to on their own. But I grew up in, you know, like a more a more uh, external validation culture, both inside my home and in Palo Alto. So, well, for me, that's thing to come to. <laughs> no, I don't think you. I think you're far from alone in those feelings. And I would even add to it. I mean, you talk about being in an audience-based culture where, if like the work has an audience, it's it's automatically con- you know considered good. And I think that you can extend that to money where if, you know, if a product or service is profitable and especially if it's wildly profitable, I think people automatically confer, uh, some, some sort of air of goodness around it, even though the yeah, product or service, yeah. And it could be, it, it actually could be ultra toxic and, and actually very bad for people and bad for the earth or whatever the case may be. And I find that so frustrating you know, to watch the way the culture celebrates things pretty thoughtlessly sometimes simply because there's a lot of money raining down. And that to me feels foolish. And, uh, it feels like indicative of a deeper, um, dysfunction in human beings. And, and I don't, I, you know, I, I want to make sure to add that like, there are times when I'm guilty of this, you know, or it's not like I'm completely removed from it, but I think like maybe we're similar in the sense of like, like having a sense of that and like also wanting to move away from it. And I guess what I would tell you and myself and anyone is that like, if you are doing that, um, I would like, I applaud your courage for doing that because it takes courage to be willing to make that leap. Um, I'm sure it, it doesn't come without its fear, you know, to move in the direction of what is most deeply important to you, knowing that there's risk involved. Like you might not, um, like there might not be financial rewards. It might be very challenging because you've made these choices, but I got to believe that in the long run of life, especially as one gets towards the end of one's life, it'll be a, it'll be a better experience to know that you were true to yourself. Yeah, I, I really believe that. I, I mean, and it took me a while to get there because I stayed in litigation actually for some time after that, sort of 
shocked because I was just so um, sort of shocked by what had happened to me uh, because it just wasn't something anyone can prepare you for. Um, and there was no real precedent for it in your life. I mean, you before you had this episode, um, and it was really, and just so I'm clear, uh, like it was, it was like the... Uh, the catalyst for it was that you introduced SSRIs into your system and this is what tipped things like oh. neuro neurochemically. Like, right. Yeah, no, I should be clear about that. Actually. Um, I think I, I started to experience hypomania and I, it was very strange when I was on the SSRI, like a, certain strange things happened. Like I spent money I didn't have to go to the Galapagos. I started to, you know, buy furniture that I didn't need for the loft that I shared with my boyfriend of that time, you know, a lot of odd things happened when I was on SSRIs and it was, it started to affect my work as a litigator. It didn't actually make the work bad, but it suddenly became hard for me to meet deadlines the way that I always had in the past. And so I decided to go off of them and I also started to gain weight and I really didn't like that either. <laughs> I'll just be honest. Um, and so I decided to go off of them and I went off of them according to my psychiatrist's instructions and that triggered the sleeplessness and then the, the anxiety and the psychosis. Um, so it was going off of them really. That was the, that was the greater catalyst, but certainly while I was on them, I was not myself. So. And, and may I ask like, like, so, cause like, this is fascinating to me. I, um, like I have a friend who is dealing with um, bipolar diagnosis and I've been privy to a little bit of it. And just knowing that like, it's actually difficult to diagnose and there are different types and the medication that you might need right. is different from person to person. And, you know, when it comes to neurochemistry and mental health and the medications that we're using in modern times to help people deal with, uh, you know, illnesses and challenges, it's, it's a... Uh, I don't know. It feels kind of young as a science and as a medicine. And it also feels like, um, it's, it's certainly not one size fits all. Right. No, it's, it's really difficult to diagnose and it's difficult to treat. And some people respond to treatments very well. And some people don't respond to any of the treatments. And some people, you know, don't, don't think that the medication makes them a different person or if they, or, you know, they, they don't feel completely different on it, but then others of us do feel really different on medications. So, yeah. but you seem to have found some kind of equilibrium, right? I mean, uh, obviously it, it's, it, it leveled out. You're, you're sleeping. <laughs> yeah, I am sleeping. Right. But I, it's still a struggle and it's still something that's a source of anxiety. Like I organize my life in a very tight way. I don't, I don't know anyone else who lives by such a weird tight schedule. Like, like I do, everything I do is like extremely, planned out ahead of time to make sure that I always get my sleep because I know now that sleep is the trigger, right? Like the lack of sleep is the trigger for me. So, so what does that mean? Um, and what does that mean in practice? Like planned out, like you have to get X amount of hours of sleep every night. Yes. Yeah. I have to get it. And I, and I have to sort of insist on it, even if, you know, other people think that sounds why, you know, I, I, I can't have fun essentially in the same way that some people can have fun. So, well, I, listen, I'm the same way and I didn't have to deal with any of this. I'm like, I, if, if I'm out pat, like past 10 o'clock at night, I guess it depends what time you get up in the morning, but I, I don't know how people, I guess people just schedule themselves differently. If you're sleeping in until nine or 10 in the morning, then fine. You can stay out later, but I can't do it. I'm sort of a waste of space after a certain hour. <laughs> As you've seen. <laughs> um, so may I, I, and like, just one final question, like in terms of, um, you know, you said when you went off the SSRIs that that sort of was the catalyst for um, a lot of what you went through. 
like in terms of resolving this, you know, in addition to knowing that you need sleep because sleep is a real trigger, like, did you have, did you have to find some sort of like medicinal, um, approach or cocktail that worked for you? Or did you completely remove yourself from that? Uh, no, I was on various cocktails for eight years and I was not seven or eight years and I was completely miserable because I was not myself. They messed up my writing. I mean, and when I say messed up my writing, they really messed up my writing. How so? My sense of language became completely different than what it naturally is. Um, I had a hard time. I left out words. I tried to produce meanings that weren't there. I mean, it just completely discombobulated my my brain. Um, but I also did therapy at the same time. And I think uh, being on the medications allowed the therapy to work. Uh. You know, just because it, because they're so sedating. So I was able to take in sort of the therapy sessions in a way that maybe I wouldn't have been able to had I not been medicated like that. Um, and it, it just affected, I mean, it even affected my, it never affected like my clients or anything like that, but it definitely affected my speed. Like I couldn't think as quickly as I, as I can off of them. I think I, I naturally think very quickly. Um, and on them, I was just slow. I, I couldn't make sentences all, you know, I got so many rejections during that period because the stuff, I, the work I sent out was such crap. And, um, you know, it just, it was, it was not, it, it was not a good thing, but, but they're so necessary, right? I mean, depending on how severe the illness is. So I think in my case, because there was an SSRI component, I, I had not had, you know, any kind of psychotic break prior to that. I had never, I had experienced hypomania before that, but I had never experienced mania, mania, you know, mania, what, mania what is, is just a different beast. What so. is that? What, may, may I ask, like, what is hypomania versus mania? So hypomania is just a slight elevation, you know, like somebody who's able to get more done, you know, in a shorter period of time, talks a little bit faster, um, you know, has some, some components of mania, but is still somewhat within control. Okay. I'm trying, I'm sitting here trying to think if I have ever had hypomania. <laughs> I don't <laughs> well, think probably so. Not. I mean, it's like a, it's a disturbance. Definitely. <laughs> you know, it, it's still a disturbance, but it doesn't cause problems the way that mania causes problems. Mania. Like mania, you go, you take yourself across, you know, on, you travel, you want to talk to everybody, you might have sex with random partners, you know, there's just a very different, there's a different degree of severity with mania. So how are the Galapagos, by the way? Oh, I love the Galapagos. I think it was, it was amazing. Um, but then, <laughs> you know, I think, I don't know how much of it was that I was hypomanic during that period of time and sort of everything took on this tinge of, um, of meaning and, you know, beauty. And, you know, I'm, I wrote probably one of the best poems I ever wrote there and, you know, stuff like that. So I'm picturing you just like pacing like the beach with like tur <laughs> with turtles everywhere. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. No, I mean, there's uh, the turtles are the best. Yeah. The water and the, the turtles, but the turtles were in the water, not on, on the beach, on the beach. There were like more like uh, iguanas and um, different kinds of birds. I mean, it was an amazing experience. I, I, I wouldn't trade it at the same time. Like, I'm not sure how much of it was me consciously being there because I don't spend money or act that impulsively, you know, on, you know, I'm a little bit impulsive, but I'm not that impulsive. You know? Yeah. The, like, the Galapagos impulsive is like next level. <laughs> yeah, no, that's like a next level experience, <laughs> you know, and I went off, to, you know, I went to Coachella like a couple weeks after that. I didn't have the money for any of these things I should add, you know, so <laughs> 
So it was different. How was Coachella? Oh, uh, it was pretty good that year. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've never uh, been. I've I lived in. I mean, I live here in Los Angeles. I've never been to Coachella. Yeah, I think it's more. I, I think it might be played out, but I <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to insert put my foot in my mouth. So I think I think Anita wanted to say. I really enjoyed I, it. <laughs> I think I think you wanted to say like Brad. I think you're a little old to be honest for Coachella. <laughs> No, no, not at all. And we're we're not going to be too old until we're like sixty something or seventy something. <laughs> then we then we go to then we go. They have like old Coachella. They have like Coachella for old people. <laughs> right. When right. do you when do well, I graduate to that? to that? Yeah. No. I mean, there's that whole Aldous Huxley thing about taking mescaline when you're really old and you know about to die or whatever. And that seems like a very worthwhile experience to me. I'm a hundred. So probably have different perceptions that are really cool. Yeah. I'm a hundred percent in like I was looking, uh, I was, I've been, you know, people who listen to this show know that I'm obsessed with like this whole psychedelic, uh, revival that's going on. But yeah. I was yeah, looking, I've been looking online lately. There are all these like, what is it called? Like a life enhancement center. It's like a vacation spa in Costa Rica where you can go and like sort of stay in like semi luxury, but you do ayahuasca under the, you know, under the watchful eye of like, you know, shamans or I don't even know what the deal is, but I find myself perusing these sites. Like, should I be doing this? Like, am I missing some opportunity? I, I, I do feel like I want to have those experiences in, um, you know, middle and latter stages of my life. Cause they've all been, uh, confined pretty much to my youth when I don't think I really knew what the fuck I was doing. Right. Yeah, no, I feel like it'll be a completely different experience when we're really old and can do psychedelics, definitely. Have you had, I mean, do you, I, have you had, I guess you went to Berkeley, you had to have had at least a couple psychedelic experiences. Yeah, no, I have. I've had some good ones and some very bad ones. So, yeah. Is that something like uh, that you would be willing to do again or like in the aftermath of all that you've been through, would that be something that you would like? Oh God. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no. And I always take that into account now. Right. I don't do any drugs. I, I, I don't even drink that much caffeine. I, I, I drink like tea every morning. That's it. Um, yeah, I would when I'm older and I don't have to make a living. Um, <laughs> yeah. That'll change you know? the calculus. Yeah. It's, it's the whole having to make a living and not being able to afford losing your mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I actually did shrooms in Amsterdam um, by myself and thought that I was in this gigantic video game, just like walking, you know, and I, the person there said, you can take the whole box. And like a dum-dum, I actually, that's what I did. And <laughs> it was just, you know, it was, <laughs> but I'm really lucky that, you know, these Dutch people, these Dutch graduate students took me in and like took care of me because, you know, what a stupid thing to do, but what were you doing? You, I mean, I know you thought you were in a video game, but like, were you like wandering the streets just actively yeah, ma it was making noises or <laughs> no, I wasn't making noises. I'm actually like very, um, yeah, no, <laughs> I was not making noises. I'm pretty quiet. Uh, I was wandering around in the snow, um, and uh, just completely lonely. It was the, it was new year's day in 2001, I think. And, and just wandering the snow and looking at windmills and crying and, you know, <laughs> having like these like random thoughts that I thought were really meaningful. And then I eventually knocked on the window of this, these grad students apartment and they, they babysat me essentially after that, they just took me in and took care of me and wandered around with me. And, you know, they're probably thinking stupid American, you know, <laughs> you're like, Hey, this, this video game sucks. Can you guys yeah, help me out? <laughs> 
yeah, no, that was my that was my whole you know my whole thought process was like maybe these people can help me get out of this video game. Like maybe they know some secret trick to make this stop. You know. So you wait. Yeah. You just walking past somebody's window. You see some people inside and you start knocking. Yeah, I knocked on the window. There's a whole group of people. I was I was desperate, right? Because I came early to my um, to my study abroad program. Nobody else was there in the shared apartment. I had made these the spaghetti. I didn't know the I didn't know how strong fresh mushrooms are. Like you know, I, just, I just didn't know. Like you know, the stuff you get in Berkeley is really mild. Like there's nothing. Nothing really happens. You know, it's just so it just something minor happens, like a good feeling, but it's not you know a a big deal. Um, so, so I didn't know what to expect and I just got myself into trouble. Uh, but yeah, no, I would never, I would not do that now. <laughs> um, and you know, if I ever do it again, it'll be when I'm very old and have finished working. So, okay. and, and like speaking of work, like you, you know, you talk about needing sleep and being very regimented in terms of ensuring that you get it. I would have to believe you're a morning writer then. Yes, I am a morning writer, but I, I, I'm naturally a night writer, actually, but I had just had to give that up. So, because you were like, you're like one of these people who back in the day, you're like staying up until all hours, just right, right, right. Yeah. And back in the day, I used to start writing actually after school. And so I'd be writing, you know, after classes were over at like four or five, and then I would go on until, you know, the middle of the night or longer. Uh, But that's that those days are very, very long. Well, you've got, you've got, you've got three children. Yeah, I have three children now, so no, we live by a very, very strict schedule in our house. So. Well, you, yeah, I'm, I'm like I'm always, I, I'm, I always have great admiration. Like I'm a parent myself, obviously, but uh, you know, for people who are doing all of that and then also able to get the writing work done as well, like you, you, a, you have to be disciplined. I don't know how, I don't know how else you could possibly do it. I guess some people just like. They find a pocket of time and they sit in like the minivan and scribble into a notebook or something. But um, I think you'd have to have a schedule, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, you'd have to, you do have to have a schedule uh, with kids, especially. But yeah. So what does it look like for you? You get up and you work for how long? Probably only about an hour unless I take, there's certain days I go to a co-working space that I, where I just write uh, fiction and I do that two days a week, two days a month. So um, sometimes four days a month, but it, you know, it just depends. But, um, but those days are just reserved for fiction, like the entire day, but usually it's just an hour in the morning. How long, how much like does it, I mean, I know it probably varies, uh, but like in general, like what does an hour long writing session for you tend to yield in terms of output? It depends on if I'm like drafting or if I'm revising, I actually get more stymied by revising <laughs> than I do by drafting. So drafting usually will produce several pages. Um, but revising, I might get nothing done just because I might just be looking at the words, not really knowing what to do. And what is like the longest writing session for you look like these days? These days, probably about eight or eight, eight or nine hours. Oh, you, so you, you will have days where you can open it up that much. Yeah. I, I specifically take off a couple days just to work on fiction. Uh, it's like the only, the only way that I will feel, you know, like myself. So I do take probably two to four days where I, it's just fiction that whole day. And you can sit there for eight hours and just work happily like for that long without like, maybe you break for like a, a meal or something, but yeah, I, uh, well, I, I'm 
planning what I'm going to write about when I'm, you know, running errands and making food for the kids and stuff like that. I am thinking about my novel during that, those times. So by the time I come to sit down to just work on fiction, I usually have a lot stored up. Like there's almost like an urgency. So, and that's why it becomes necessary to have, to have those days where I can just get it all done. Do you keep notes as you have, like, let's say you're like cooking dinner for your kids or something and you're, you're thinking about your novel and you have some sort of epiphany about like structure or plot or what happens in chapter four. Like, do you write this stuff down in your phone or on a notebook or do you just store it all in your brain and keep it? <laughs> um, I don't write much down because I actually want to keep that sense of urgency where I'll like have to write it. And if I try to get it down, you know, on a, in a notebook, to, in in too elaborate a form, then that'll just remove the urgency. I just mean like but, as a reminder. Like I'm scared. Oh, I would, as a I'm, reminder, I'm, yes. I'm, I do write. I write things as a reminder on my note on the notes function on my phone, or okay. like on a scrap of piece of paper, or like a receipt, or you know whatever. Yeah, like my memory is just not that good. I'm scared. I like it's like one of those things where like you know you ha you get stoned and you have like a great idea and then you forget to write it down and then you wake up the next day and you're like, what the fuck? What, what was it? You know, it slips away. So right. I'm more always worried, like when I have those things, I got to write them down. And I, and sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. And every time I don't, or most times that I don't, oh, oh, I, you forget. Yes. It drives me crazy. Yeah. No, that would drive me crazy as well. It sucks. So what are you working on now? I know you have your collection out, but I mean, like, are you, like, you seem like one of these people who's got like multiple projects going. Yeah. I'm working on a, a novel right now that I'm trying to make a little bit more commercial but yeah <laughs> i i do have a project that i'm working on it's a novel with like a family saga component and a speculative component what does so. what does make it more commercial mean uh make it less um out there like i i tend to write and i've always written kind of in an out there way i'm trying to be a little less out i've lately been thinking this doesn't serve me well <laughs> so i'm trying to be a little trying to be a little bit more um traditional in my thinking or a little bit more, um, a little less about, you know, how do I make something original and a little more, how do I make something that, that people will respond to? Okay. So, I mean, I get that. I get that. I don't, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, it's not like wanting to like issue a criticism because I have like the same thought. It's like trying to strike this balance between being true to oneself and writing the book that you yourself would want to read and kind of following your natural gesture, if we can circle back to that, um, you know, phrase. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but also paying um, attention to the fact and, and really understanding that what you're trying to do is communicate and that, you know, if you're writing and you want to publish, you, you know, the intention is to reach the reader and to make sure that you're delivering a story that connects. And I think right. that's like, that's a very valid thing to be concerned with. Um, but it's a fine line because if you, I think if you, try too hard to kind of, I don't know, like you say, make it commercial or predict the market or write to some imaginary audience. Sometimes you can, you can stray from your own, um, strongest qualities. So do you feel a sense of that? Are you trying to make sure you're kind of like walking that tightrope? Yes, definitely. I, um, I, I think I'm, I'm such a weirdo that I don't think anything I do will make my work, uh, really deviate from, my natural gesture, but I just want to <laughs> improve, improve the storytelling to the point where 
I, I always think of it as, you know, this is the fascination I have with folklore too, tying it back is that, you know, folklore just kind of gets retold the same way over and over. But every time, you know, a new teller tells it, there's going to be some little idiosyncrasy or whatever. And I think the th- same thing is actually a little bit true in what we have in literary fiction right now is that, you know, there, a lot of the books are similar, um, you know, but finding that idiosyncrasy that makes the book, di- that makes your book different is, is sort of the art of it. I tend to be so far out in, in, in terms of my interests and what, you know, what my natural um, approach to things is that, you know, I'm trying to be a little bit more cognizant of, yes, there's a reader and I want that reader to understand what I'm getting at, you know, like it, definitely with the short story collection, I love, you know, I personally love my own collection um, in the sense that like it, it's what I intended to say. And it's a pretty weird, weird book in some ways, but, but there's definitely elements of the book that are harder to understand. You know, there's certain elements about caste or about, you know, um, sort of diasporic uh, tensions with, you know, a native with the Tamils back in India. And I want, I want a little bit, a little bit less um, mysteriousness around <laughs> around those those things because I I can tell that there's some mysteriousness where people are just not quite understanding understanding sort of the those elements of the of the book those elements that are more mysterious or that aren't already existing in our culture you know so mm-hmm. uh, so with this novel I'm trying to sort of bridge that gap a little bit better. Well, I wish you luck with that project, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, and congratulations on your collection and uh, the success that it's having. Oh, thanks so much, Brad, and thanks for making time to talk to me. Okay, that is Anita Felicelli. Her debut story collection is called Love Songs for a Lost Continent. It is available now from Stillhouse Press. Love Songs for a Lost Continent. Go get your copy right now. If you would like to track Anita Felicelli down on the internet, she's at anitafelicelli.com. You can follow her on Twitter, at Anita Felicelli. Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music, as always. Thank you to the band Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to support this program, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, The address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. This show has its own official app. It's free. Go get the Other People app. It's available wherever you get your apps. It's completely free. It's a great way to listen. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. It's extremely user-friendly. So the nervous breakdown.com is uh, in new hands. You can email Joey Grantham at the nervous breakdown at jgrantham at the nervous breakdown.com if you have a inquiry or a submission. You can also find him on Twitter at Mr. J Grantham, I believe. Let me double check that. Yeah, Mr. J. Grantham. But Mr. is spelled out, M-I-S-T-E-R, J. Grantham, on Twitter. And you can follow The Nervous Breakdown on Twitter at TMB Tweets. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at OtherPPL. So, I hope you guys are doing okay. Crazy week. I wanted to talk about it, like all the politics of the moment. I just, I keep resisting that impulse. 
I'm going to try to keep things separate. Maybe not overwhelm this show with too much political conversation, but my God, what a week. Feels like things are ratcheting up. I don't want to make too many predictions about what's going to happen. I know there have been a lot of false summits. I know that we often feel like we have reached some kind of inflection point, but then it's not really like an inflection point and things don't really shift in a way that's tangible. But man, this has to be it, right? This has to be the beginning of the end. We have to be at some kind of pivot after what we went through this past week, right? Please tell me that's true. Okay, we'll talk to you soon.